uh, we're going to be looking at a biblical view of authority, eventually focusing on authority in the local church. A commentator I read, I believe it was Richard Foster, paraphrased uh, Ecclesiastes 7.29 as saying, God created man simple, man's complex problems are his own creation. Uh, the same commentator also noted that to be simple is to desire one thing. We were created to desire one thing, fellowship with the Lord our God. When we chose in Adam to turn our back on God, we replaced the simplicity, we, we, excuse me, we replaced that simplicity with a self-interest that can never satisfy since it's out of sync with our created heart and our created desires. As a result, our lives become ever more complex as we run here and there looking for the peace, security, satisfaction, and purpose that can only be found in the simplicity of our created purpose to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things, old things have passed away. All things have become new. Teaches us that when we trust Christ's death and resurrection, as the means by which we can be reconciled to God, we become a new creation. At this point, we begin to live the eternal life that Jesus promised us in John 3.16, even while we are here on earth. This eternal life begins in this fallen world, and it offers us the opportunity empowered by the Holy Spirit to experience a, fall, a foretaste. Think of it as kind of like a movie trailer. You wanna know what the movie's like, you watch the movie trailer. It's a foretaste of the movie, a foretaste of our life to come in the kingdom of God. However, in this foretaste, we experience an unending conflict between the confusion inherent in the habits, thoughts, and beliefs of our old life and the simplicity, peace, and security available to us as new creations. We are vexed by our failure to experience what the Lord has promised and disgusted by the attractions and distractions the old ways hold over us. A two-verse passage in Romans, Romans 12, 1 and 2, is the key to understanding and escaping these conflicts. Paul shows us three truths in this passage, which reads, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The three truths that we wanna take from this passage today are that even though we are new creations in Christ, the old habits, beliefs, and ways of viewing the world, excuse me, uh, still affect us. I would give you an example from uh, yesterday afternoon. Um, 
I don't have to go very far back to find, you know, when the old nature messed with my head. Uh, I'm, I'm on call from my job, and uh, I have covered that responsibility for a number of my coworkers so that they were able to do things they wanted to do, like go to a country music concert, really important things like that. And uh, when, when I asked them if one of them could, could cover for me, uh, you know, while I took the opportunity to preach God's word to you all and see your lives changed on a foundational level, um, nobody responded. I didn't word the request exactly like that. But uh, nobody responded, and so I'm sitting there working on this message yesterday afternoon, waiting for the phone to ring to tell me that there's some emergency somewhere and that I have to drop what I'm doing and, and go off and deal with it. And the first thought that went through my mind is, I covered for that jerk to go to a concert. He owes me. Folks, he doesn't owe me. I covered for him because he's my brother in the flesh. He's not a believer. But as a foretaste of the kingdom of God, he needs to see that I love him unconditionally so much that I will give up part of my weekend so that he can go to some stupid concert. But immediately when I had the opportunity, the old way of thinking of I did for him and now I need to get leapt to the forefront of my mind. Interestingly enough, in the interest of full disclosure, an hour later he called me and said, oh man, I just saw your email, I can cover for you. So I was like, where were you three hours ago, Turkey? <laughs> the second truth we see there is that we have the choice to transform our minds out of these old ways by replacing our previous understanding of what is true with the truth of God's word. <clears throat> That's what we're gonna be about today. We wanna to address a particular topic, three aspects of it, and we wanna take out the old truth that is stuck in our heads, and we wanna replace it with the truth of God's word. And finally, the third truth that we see in this passage is if we fail to actively transform we will be conformed. The default setting in computer lingo is to be conformed. That is what happens naturally. It takes action. It takes effort to be transformed, to see the truths of the world and the influence of the world replaced by the truth of God's word. In the coming three weeks, or four weeks actually, we're going to be looking at topics related to a biblical view of authority. Eventually, we're going to focus on authority as it's expressed in local church leadership. We have all been influenced by our experiences with authority, by authority figures, leaders, leadership in the world. Today, we want to answer three specific questions about authority in general. What we're doing today is laying a foundation for the weeks that come. The first question we're going to ask and answer is, where does authority come from? The second is, why does God grant authority to individuals and institutions? 
And third, what is God's model for leadership, the exercise of authority? The first question, where does authority come from? We want to look at a couple passages briefly. Um, as I mentioned, I wrote this yesterday, so unfortunately you don't get to see the passages on the screen. We're going to have to go old school. Look it up on your phone. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Talk about the conversation that God had with himself in the creation of man. Where he said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the, every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, twice in this passage, man's creation in the image and after the likeness of God is mentioned. And likewise, twice in this short passage, man's dominion over God's creation is mentioned. If you read this in the NIV, you'll notice that it says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over. This makes it clear that being made in the image and after the likeness of God includes the ability to exercise authority, and that were we not created in the image and after the likeness of God, we would not be able to exercise authority. Now, being created in the image and after the likeness of God includes far more than just the ability to exercise authority, but that is part of it, and it is something that is given to us each and every one of us, male, female, human beings of every race and description, of every ethnicity, of every cultural background, the ability to exercise authority is given to them. As we're going to see, that's kind of a two-edged sword. In Romans 13, verses 1 through 8, uh, which I'm, I'm not going to read, but I would suggest you look it up. The passage speaks specifically about the authority of the government over its citizens. While we are not exploring that particular topic today, we will extract a couple principles on authority from that passage. In answering this particular question, we see that Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says that God owns all authority. There is no authority on earth other than God's authority. He is the ultimate, and then he invests or grants the ability to exercise authority to those he appoints to specific roles. In Luke 12, verses 42 to 48, which is a relatively familiar parable and one of several on 
where Jesus talks about stewardship. We see that in the scriptures, authority is always issued in the context of accountability or responsibility. Anytime that God grants authority, he holds those who receive the authority accountable for how they discharge the responsibility he has given them. In verse 48, we see that to whom much is given, much will be required. And so this is a, this is a sliding scale, so to speak. The, the more authority God grants, the more demanding the accountability standard is. In Daniel chapter 4, verses 17, 25, and 35, we see one of the, the, the great examples of God dealing with government, where God has set up Nebuchadnezzar as a ruler of the Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar becomes proud, and God, remaining utterly sovereign, judges his pride by having him spend a, a period of time as a madman until such a time as he humbles himself and recognizes that God is supreme and not Nebuchadnezzar. His son Belshazzar, in chapter 5, verses 22 and following, doesn't learn that lesson. And as a result, the hand writes on the wall, many, many tickle, I said that wrong, I'm sorry. I knew I was going to make that mistake. Euphorson, okay? That he has been weighed in the balances and found wanting. The prophet Daniel makes it clear that this is because he did not learn the lesson that his father had learned. So in conclusion, answering the question, where does authority come from, we would say that each human is endowed with the ability and responsibility to exercise authority as a part of their creation in the image of God. We could also say, we can also say that God is the ultimate authority, that no authority on earth exists unless he grants it. Those granted authority by God are held accountable for their use of that authority, and God will sometimes remove from authority those who were abusing that authority. So why does God grant authority to individuals and institutions? If we go back to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 8 again, we see that God has given authority to human government for the specific task of maintaining order in society. That those entrusted with this authority are to be a blessing to society. They are to exercise authority for the good of society at large. Those granted authority by the Lord are expected to use that authority to pursue his aims, to pursue the betterment of those ruled. Um, that's a little bit more clearly stated in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Scripture shows us that there are four areas, four institutions to which and through which the Lord has delegated authority. I'll list them, but we will not explore them in depth today. The first is government, which we've already talked about. The second is family. The key passage for this would be Ephesians 5, 21 to chapter 6, verse 4. And here if we extract the truths relative to leadership and authority, we see that the authority 
that authority is to be used for the betterment of the family, and that sacrifice begins in the life of the one wielding the authority. We see that God has also established the employee-employer relationship. Colossians 3, 22 to 25. God emphasizes that the misuse of authority will not be ignored. God will certainly judge. It's very interesting that in the two passages that talk about employer-employee relationships, both end with an encouragement to employees that abuse of power will not be ignored. That was a freebie. The fourth institution or uh, sphere of authority is the church. Hebrews 13, 17 emphasizes that those entrusted with authority are accountable to the Lord as they pursue the betterment of the congregation. So in conclusion, what do we learn in answer to this question, why does God grant authority? We see that God issues authority to those he chooses for the benefit of those over whom the authority is exercised. We see that God will hold those in authority responsible for the successful use of their authority, and he will judge those who misuse it. We see that God expects that those who wield his authority will do so self-sacrificially. In other words, not for their own betterment, but for the betterment of, of those entrusted to them. So our third question, what is God's model for leadership, the exercise, which is the, le- the exercise of authority? And for this, we're going to turn to uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. I want to set the, the context. Uh, we're, we're going to camp on this passage pretty much for the, the rest of the message. Uh, I want to set the the context of this passage. If we look at uh, verses 13 through 16, we have the, I know it's going to be familiar to to some of you. Uh, We have the the case where people were bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed, and the disciples were turning them away. I mean, after all, does Jesus really have time for kids? It's adults that are important. Uh, That was sarcasm or irony, whichever. But Jesus uses it as a teaching opportunity to explain to the disciples that the children should come to him because children are critically important. And he uses the children as an object lesson to say that you must receive the kingdom of God like a child. Now, how does a child receive things? A child receives things simply with no strings attached. Children are very simple. And that's how we have to receive God's offer of salvation in simplicity to desire one thing. In verses 17 through 27, we see a rich young ruler who comes and says, teacher, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, knowing his his heart and knowing him, says to him, "Uh, well, you know, the law says And he says, I have kept the entire law. Well, that's completely bogus. He didn't keep the entire law, okay? I mean, let's face it, we're us. Anybody, does anybody here keep the entire moral code? No. But he says, yeah, well, I kept the whole thing. And so Jesus says to him, well, you're lacking one last thing. Sell everything you have, and then you can follow me. 
and he went away very disappointed because he had much stuff. Now his stuff had made his life complicated. And so Jesus establishes a contrast between these children who received the kingdom of God simply and this rich young ruler who couldn't receive the kingdom of God, who turned it down because his life was complicated by his wealth. In verses 28 through 31, Peter, having just heard the qualifications given to the, given to the rich young ruler, says, Whoa, Lord, we gave up everything to follow you. Looks like we have it nailed, right? And Jesus, interestingly, does not rebuke him. Instead, he assures him that his sacrifices, that those who sacrifice for the kingdom of God, will be rewarded for that sacrifice. And then he closes with an interesting statement, a warning, when he says, and many who were first will be last, and many who are last will be first. I kind of wonder if that wasn't a kind of a, I'll say a veiled rebuke to Peter as he was, we know from the rest of scripture that he had a bit of a problem with pride. That as Peter said, whoa, here I am, I have it all, thinking he was first, Jesus warned him that sometimes the first will be last and the last will be first. Verses 32 and 34, which immediately precede our passage, tell us about the temperament of, of those following Jesus. It says that the, the disciples are amazed, but the followers are fearful. So the guys closest to Jesus are amazed at what he's saying, and those that are following him, that are, that are kind of along for the ride, that are on the periphery, they're a little upset. This is some heavy-duty teaching. And so Jesus explains to the disciples the troubles of the coming days, how he's going to be rejected as Messiah, spat on, persecuted, and abused. At that point, we come to verse 35. In light of the context of Jesus' previous statements, the following request is more than a little bit strange. Now we're going to work through this passage, and, and I'm going to throw out, I found this really, really, really exciting. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, i got to tell you. Um, the passage didn't teach what I thought it taught. And um, I, I came away with a lot of questions that I hope someday I'll be able to work out the answers for, and some of them just aren't answerable. But I, I want to share all of that with you because I just, I love you guys. And... This is just really good stuff. So as difficult as it may be, please pay attention and please try to understand. Verse 35 opens with the statement, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. Now I want to stop there for a second and ask, I ask myself the question, who, who are James and John? Okay, well, everybody knows. Well, they're two apostles. These guys weren't just apostles. These guys were heavy hitters. These guys were, they, they were known as the sons of thunder. Uh, traditionally, and this is not in scripture, but the, the traditional, the, the ancient writings say that they were apparently easygoing until they were provoked, and then they could really go off the rails fast. 
Uh, we know that at one point in Luke 9, uh, 54, uh, they suggested, or they actually asked Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven on this Samaritan town because they refused to offer us hospitality? Could you imagine that? Somebody comes to your door, asks for hospitality, you don't agree with, where they're, with, with, with what they're about, and so fire comes from heaven and consumes you? That's a little bit over the top, which Jesus explained to them that that's really not what they were about, burning up towns. They came from a well-to-do family. Their mother traveled with the disciples and aided in the group's support from her means. They started out as disciples of John the Baptist and then kind of transferred over uh, to Jesus when he called them. The two, the two brothers were part of Jesus' inner circle. They were there at Jesus' transfiguration. They were invited by Jesus to step apart in the Garden of Gethsemane and pray with him. James was the first of the apostles to be martyred. He's the only one whose death is recorded in the New Testament. That's in Acts 12, uh, verse 2. John was the youngest of the disciples and was known as the disciple Jesus loved. John followed Jesus into the high courts into the high priest's courtyard on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to John as he was being crucified. John wrote the Gospel of John, the three epistles of John, and the book of Revelation. These two guys who made this request were among Jesus' closest friends. They were among the people that he had invested heavily in. And they were, and maybe this was a pivotal point for them, I don't know, because much of what I just listed happened afterwards. Maybe this was a turning point for them. But anyways, James, John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one at your right and one on your left, in your glory. First of all, the brothers were addressing an acknowledged authority figure in their life because they called Jesus teacher, rabbi. And in the structure of their times, that meant that they submitted to his authority. To us, this looks like a strange request. Give me whatever I want. Promise you're going to give me whatever I want. That's eh, a blank check. Note that Jesus doesn't treat the request as strange, nor does he answer with, sure, up to half my kingdom, which is how kings would answer uh, would, would reward people that they said, I'll give you anything you want. They would always attach up to half my kingdom. I believe that James and John were looking for an affirmation of relationship here. They expect Jesus to trust them that they will not ask for the ability to fly or to roast Samaritan towns at will. Jesus understands this. I've received similar requests. I've had guys come up to me and say, pastor, boss, whatever it was, 
promise me that you'll do something for me. The first thought that always went through my mind is what is this going to cost me? Absolute first thought every time, didn't matter who it was, what is this going to cost me? I was entirely focused on what I would have to do as a result of the request. Note Jesus' response. But Jesus said to them, I do not know what, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? Jesus responded to their request with concern that the brothers did not understand what they were asking for. He wasn't focused on himself. He was focused on them. As a leader, he sought the good of those he led, and he wanted to make sure they were not going off like being all sons of thunder on them, being all impetuous and everything. And so they answered him, and they said in verse 39, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. You see, Jesus knew his people. He asked a question of them. Now, he knew that he wasn't going to grant their request because that wasn't within his authority. But instead of saying, no, guys, sorry, I can't do that, you know, that, that his right and left hand thing, somebody else already got those seats. He asked them a question so that they would think about the request that they had just made and grow and mature as a result of plumbing their heart and mind and soul to find the answer. He sees the teaching opportunity. His people also trusted him because when he said to them that he could not grant their request, even though they, were, they said they were able to meet the prerequisites that he had set, they didn't argue with him. They accepted his answer. Hearing this, the 10 began to feel indignant with James and John. You think. I imagine the comments may have gone something like this. What, you guys think you're better than us? That you deserve to sit on the right hand and the left hand? You know, there's something else that just occurred to me. James and John didn't care which of them was on the right or left. You would have thought James, as the older brother, would have said, uh, Lord, grant that, you know, I mean, I'm the older, so let me sit on the right hand. And the kid here, Give him the left hand. No, they just said, us. I have a hard time seeing those guys as being after the power and the authority and everything. But I, I don't know that they weren't. I, I really don't know the answer to that, but it just, doesn't, it just doesn't feel right to me. But anyways. So the comments probably went something like this. What do you think? You, you guys think you're better than us? Or just because you're in the inner circle doesn't mean that you're more important than we are. The disciples saw that the path to authority, position, 
and leadership as the path to greatness and personal value. In verse 40, 42, Jesus calls them to himself and says, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, for whoever wishes to become great among you shall be, be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Here Jesus lays out the reality of greatness within the kingdom of God. Greatness has been the issue from the get-go. The apostles initially saw authority and position and power as the road to greatness. Jesus never addresses in his response to the uh, apostles here authority or position. He talks about greatness. He also addresses misconceptions about the nature of authority. He states the world's view, the rulers of the Gentiles, of authority were that Authority equaled personal value and position. Authority was used for personal benefit. Those led were expected to sacrifice for the benefit of those they were lead, uh, who led them. Those in authority felt that they had and were viewed as having greater personal significance and value than others. A stratified society existed where greater privilege and value were assigned to those in authority. Leaders were domineering over those they led. When Jesus begins to discuss the contrast between the rulers of the Gentiles and among you, he switches from discussing leaders and authority to discussing greatness. The real issue was greatness, personal value, a desire for position. The truths on authority and leadership are, in a sense, collateral blessings. Jesus contrasts that view with the biblical view that the path to greatness is the path to servanthood. That a leader is a servant or a slave to those led. That the path to greatness within the kingdom is in the world's view, a downward spiral. Look at the way he repeats in verses 43 and then in verse 44, that those who wanna be great among you, he starts with servant and then he escalates to slave. There's a process there that as, as if, if we seek to be great in the kingdom of God, that greatness is attained through the degree of our service to others. The life of the leader is also characterized, we see by Jesus' closing statement, that even the Son of Man did not to come to, to be served, but to serve, and then interestingly, and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. The life of a leader is characterized by sacrifice for the benefit of those led. So 
So to summarize Mark 11, we would say that the world views authority and leadership as a means of personal advancement, giving greater power and value to those in authority. Leaders are better than other people, have more value, and are more important. Among us, as Jesus put it, the path to greatness is the path of servanthood. True greatness is found in serving our brethren. Likewise, leaders within the church are expected to serve those they lead and sacrifice themselves for the benefit of the congregation. I hope those truths will be a help to you. I want to revisit a passage in, in Mark chapter 11 and ask a simple question. If John and James had read through verse 45 and they understood the lesson that Jesus was going to teach, would that have changed their initial request? I can't say that they would have changed their mind because like I said, I really don't have clarity on what was actually in their head. But if their desire was to be great in the kingdom of God, then their request should have gone something like this. Instead of saying, grant us that we can sit on your right hand and your left hand when you come into your glory, they would have knelt before him and said, Lord, how can we serve you and serve the people that you seek to serve? Because that was the path that would lead to the goal they were looking for. In a minute, I'm going to close with a benediction. But before we do that, I'm going to pray simply that each of us as we leave today, would see the opportunities for servanthood that exist day by day, whether it's within the body here at Grace Chapel or out in the worlds in which we travel, that we would bless others through our selfless service to them and in so doing become great-er in the kingdom of God. In addition, that we would understand the true nature of authority and that on this foundation, that, that using this as a foundation rather than the, the, the lies and the errors and the mistakes of the world, we would be able to uh, function as intended as a local body of Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you our Father and our God, we thank you that you have not set a great hurdle ahead of us. You have not given us a mountain to climb, an ocean to swim across, but you have simply said that the path that pleases you, the path that leads to greatness in your kingdom, the path that leads to honor and recognition from you is the path of servanthood. Help us to see those opportunities to serve. 
give us the strength to submit to your leadership as we seize them, doing these things for your glory and not for our own. Help us to understand the true value and the true nature of authority. Help us to exercise the authority that you have given each of us in a way that honors and pleases you. Help us to submit to the authorities established over us in a way that honors and pleases you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now may the Lord who loves us 